Hey guys, welcome to the We Are Men podcast. I am your host, Carl Mason. And in this podcast, we sit down and talk with local heroes from Southwest Sydney about life, mental health, and strategies for coping with the day-to-day issues that we all face as men. Our aim with this podcast is to create a space where men can open up and discuss their mental health without the fear of shame or exclusion. I know it can be hard to ask for help as a man, but no man needs to struggle alone. We hope to encourage all men to talk about what they're going through and seek help when they need it. A quick note, this podcast may feature some adult language and suicide may be discussed, which could be triggering for some listeners. Today on the podcast, I am chatting to Ian. Ian is a pastor from Liverpool. He settled in Australia in 2004 after leaving his home of Hamilton, Canada. Aside from leaving his congregation as senior pastor, Ian is also a mentor with Mentoring Men, is part of the Western District Joggers and has started the Whiskey Circle, which provides a safe space for men to talk about manhood and their mental health. Let's jump in and meet Ian. All right, Ian, the first thing I like to do always is say thank you very much for agreeing to be part of this project. Uh, I appreciate you uh, giving your time, um, sharing what you're going to share today. Uh, We are all here passionate about this goal of making men proactive, more proactive around seeking help uh, mm. to try to prevent suicide uh, in, in males. Nice. Um, and I think these stories by other men seeing you know, men in the community talking about their story, how they deal with things, I think it will really inspire some people or give them a perspective that it's okay to reach out, it's okay to talk about things. Yeah. Um, we all go through things and that's, that's a part of life. Mm. Uh, let's start off simple. If you could tell us your name, the area that you live, and what you do. Oh, okay. Well, my name is Ian Forrest-Jones. I live here in Chipping Norton. been here just a little over two years now, and um, I'm a minister of religion. Now, Ian, you're, obviously you have an accent, so you're obviously not from Australia. No. Uh, where were you born? I was born in Canada. Um, but uh, came to Australia in 1994 for work. I had um, been employed by a church in Parramatta. Uh, after getting married, went back to Canada because I had plans to continue my studies, but then we settled here in 2004. Okay, 2004, you've been here yes. permanently. Yes. So I want to go into more about what you're doing now, but I think uh, I'd like the audience to ha- get a bit of perspective on... Uh, your story and and Mm -hmm. where you came from. Would you mind sharing a little about your upbringing? Oh, okay. Um, Well, I grew up in a place called Hamilton. So if you've ever been to visit Toronto, you're going to do the day trip to Niagara Falls, you'll go right by Hamilton. It's an industrial city, steel town, um, very working middle class, but also with a a great university and uh, and arts. Um, So it's quite a mixed city, uh, which is great. But I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, the north end of Hamilton, where there was lots of uh, substance abuse, lots of crime, lots of gangs. And uh, my mother was the partner of an outlaw motorcycle club member and uh, actually one of the officers of the club. So sort of in that uh, very troubling sort of childhood, lots of stuff going around both in the family and outside that really impacted and made life for me quite unstable and uh, difficult. Something I want to know is, and I think a lot of people can relate to feeling isolated. Mm-hmm. And obviously, packing up your life, having grown and lived in a country for your whole life, mm-hmm. packing everything up, 
moving to a new place where you don't have connections, you don't have community, uh, that must be a really hard thing to do. How did you find that whole process? Um, well, actually, I'd probably say that was the easier part of it. Because, like, again, because giving, uh, having a sense of what my childhood was like, I moved all the time. So we were constantly going, you know, every, uh, moving every year or two, uh, just because of the instability of the family life and, you know, uh, not being able to meet the bills or meet rental payments and be kicked around. So I, probably the, the move between countries was then a little bit easier in that regard. Uh, the isolation for me comes up with the particular role, uh, you know, because when you're leading a church or any kind of community, you, you sort of, you're in that tension between being part but not of the community. You can only connect so deeply before that connection becomes problematic and people start using it against you. Uh, you know, especially in church, well, I shouldn't say especially in churches, they're not unique in that, but there's always politics. People have their agendas, their ideas for the way things should go and what we should do, and so that becomes the real problem. Um, the isolation there where, you know, having to manage people's expectations um, becomes very difficult. So in going back to your childhood, I think we're going to mm -hmm. chump and change here. Um, so I believe you went through a, a, a serious loss uh, in your childhood. Um, mm -hmm. are, you, are you comfortable talking about that? Yep. Yeah. I guess I guess a good way to say it would be I didn't ever have access to a biological father. So uh, when he found out my mother was pregnant, he ditched us. So essentially, I grew up in a single parent family. However, uh, my mother always had boyfriends around. Um, the problem, and most from three or four till about twelve, um, she was with with this biker. And but even the other boyfriends going beyond that, there was never really a deep sense of connection there. So there was never really a father figure in my life. Um, the probably most defining loss was um, this biker gentleman I was telling you about got into an argument with a, another person in our house and shot him dead. And so I woke up one morning with a police officer there telling me to put shoe sandals on because, or slippers, sorry, because there was glass all over the place. So he had gone off to jail, um, but a week later, the family of the man that he killed decided to burn our house down. And so in the fire, uh, my brother passed away, as did my dog buddy. Uh, I only managed to survive because as I ran to the back door, I, uh, well, we can guess I hit my head on the back doorknob and at the bottom of the door there was an air gap and so I had um, so survived the fire because of that. But that became quite a defining uh, moment for my childhood, kind of getting over that. And then he came back into our life so, you know, always knowing that he was the cause of that um, but still having that instability around the kind of lifestyle that my family lived, you know. Mm. It's horrible. I'm so sorry that you had to go mm. through that. Thanks. In how, in the, the next stages of your life, how, like obviously now you're doing incredible things for yourself and for the community, how did you um, keep that, you know, the, the, the positive energy that you have now, how did you sustain that through that tough time? Well, I guess what, one of the saving graces of my upbringing was my mum would kick my brother. I had, she had another 
child later, um, but she would kick us out of the house on Sunday mornings. And at that time, a lot of the larger churches of Hamilton would send buses around picking up kids and families for Sunday school and for church. And so because we moved around a lot, I ended up going to a number of different churches. But in all of those places, I met very kind, caring, you know, relatively stable people who accepted me, um, which is... Uh, must have been very, very hard for them to do. <laughs> At one point, me and my friends were going to a Salvation Army church, and we were so bad, they sent us down the street to another building that they eventually tore down, let us play floor hockey to get our energy out so they could sit down and have a little Bible talk. And one of my Sunday school teachers still swears I broke his nose with a hockey stick, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't me. Um, but they were, yeah, so lovely people, even despite that. You know, they cared for us, they provided, um, they offered assistance, and, but gave me an example. And so that helped me to, so that means then that I had lots of different significant adults in my life that I could go to for support and conversation and advice and wisdom and so I guess through that built resilience and so when I came to faith myself uh, that sense of hope has always been a defining characteristic that you know I know how bad life can be when people make bad choices and how that affects not only themselves but their families and others around them so I knew what I didn't want now I was given, I guess, a vision, you could say, a glimpse into how life could be better. And so I've, you know, uh, have I done everything right? No, of course not. But I've tried my best to make wise decisions um, for myself and others ever since. So do you think that, I guess, a, a community of people around with different perspectives, different ways of living, that was the really important thing for you, like having people around? Yeah, absolutely. So I... You know, coming from the wrong side of the tracks, and it really was quite literally. A Hamilton is split by train tracks, and we were on one side. And so, you know, it was quite obvious that I didn't fit in. And so, for most of my life, I've felt much like an outsider. Nevertheless, those communities still accepted me. And so I always found, you know, especially seniors, but not only, but they would, they would always be open if I were to go and to talk and to ask questions. And they would ask questions of me and want to know how life was going. Um, you know, my first year of university was at a, a Christian liberal arts university and we had a Bible class. And so I just happened to mention in the halls of the church one day that I needed a Bible for this. And this old gentleman just quickly whipped out money and he bought me a, a big fat study Bible. So things like that, you know, they were just always willing to listen, you know, to pick me up, to take me to choir practice. You know, they were always willing to share their life with me. You know, after church, I don't know how many times I was invited back to people's homes um, just to hang out for the afternoon because there would be a service at night as well. So people, you know, despite how rough around the edges I might have been, they were always very accepting, loving, and kind. And that showed me that, yeah, I could be a different sort of person if I made good choices yeah. and yeah, tried to live as ethical a life as I could based on my faith. So, yeah. You mentioned before resilience mm. and that's something I've done a bit of work in schools and something they're really teaching uh, in these schools where there's a lot of kids from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. They've got mm. a lot of problems at home and things are going on. Uh, they're really trying to ingrain resilience. Mm, nice. Do you think that's something that's really important? For, for young men 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm glad to hear you say that they're talking about it because I fear they're not talking about it enough. Um, yes, we need to, you know, to build the resources, which are both internal. It's your own capacity and perspective on life and how you process what's happening to you. But then having the external service, um, resources of, of people around you who will support you and guide you and, and provide when you don't have, you know, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, resilience, I think, is a great topic. And I, too, have done quite a lot of reading about that. And I've, I fit it to a T. Um, not to say that I'm resilient, but I fit the kind of, you know, subject um, of that shouldn't have had it but developed it over time so yeah well i think obviously uh, you you've developed it well and that's an incredible trait to have i want to jump forward a little bit mm -hmm. um uh, you mentioned you mentioned that it was the easiest part uh of coming over here was the the moving packing up and moving you said that was what was the the toughest part in that process. <laughs> Learning how to drive on the wrong side of the road. Because uh, when I arrived the first time in 94, the, the minister who hired me for this particular church, he went away on holidays right away. So for two weeks he's gone. Uh, it was very nice of him to loan me his car, but you know, no one to sort of show me around or to guide me or to teach me. So um, it, it was an interesting two weeks learning how to drive and to go visiting people, but it was, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> and how has your journey been from 2004 uh, to today, living in Australia? Well, a little bit different because, you know, coming over here as a single person with, you know, no cares in the world, that's one thing. Um, but coming back to settle here, we had a child with us. Uh, my daughter was born in Canada. And then quite quickly, my wife got pregnant with our second child, our son. And so right away, the, the, the second time coming back to Australia was more about establishing a family, establishing a career. So um, even that, you know, up until that point, I had been involved in youth work um, for churches. And so when I, we settled in Australia, I had fully intended to stay in youth work. But then a particular church um, in uh, Hurstville invited me. I had applied to be their youth pastor, but they actually invited me to apply to be their senior pastor. So now all of a sudden... Uh, it was the right time, but it was a big step. So now my career was taking a jump into a new expression. Still the same kind of work, but now looking after the whole congregation. So it was a big challenge um, to, to jump into right away and establishing a family and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the second time was much, much harder than the first time. Okay, okay so we've been talking about, um, we've been talking about connection a lot. Um, I want to ask about disconnection. Mm -hmm. And now I know that the um, I haven't experienced uh, a loss like like you have in, mm -hmm. in that degree. I have had a few family members who have died from suicide. And I understand what that can do to a family and the trauma that that brings up. How did you feel at that moment after that time? Well, it was f fairly young. Um, luckily, well, I mean, actually, to bring suicide into it. Um, Prior to the fire, um, about a year or two prior, my, my mother had actually attempted suicide. So because of that, we ended up um, in the care of foster care. And the, the couple that took care of us for about a year, um, my mom worked hard to sort of get her life back together so she could get us back. Um, but 
they continued to be a part of our lives. So when the fire happened, we were actually put back in their care again, uh, which was awesome. They were a lovely Harry and June Roland um, who have themselves passed away since, but they were just lovely in letting us, letting me back into their home. And from that point, they continued to be um, a presence. So that helped a lot, because I guess because they had looked after me twice then, and they allowed me to continue to come go and visit them. So I would go up for about a week over school holidays in the summer, and then visit for maybe a weekend over Christmas. And I guess because we had that connection, and they understood probably more than most where I was coming from and what I'd gone through, um, they were very loving and caring and generous with me to let me be a part of their lives. And also teach me things. You know, uh, I remember we had this running joke because one time I ended up calling them my grandfather and grandmother, so I'll refer to them that way. Um, but my grandfather asked me to mow the lawn. And I said, I, I don't come here to work. I'm here for vacation. And um, they all laughed and then put me on the lawnmower which after a few minutes I promptly broke, but not on purpose. But see, that was the kind of thing, you know, being a city boy, you're not gonna learn how to mow lawns and how to work your way around tools, but he kind of cared for me like a father and showed me those things. And that again, you know, taught me how, well, yeah, prepared me for manhood and fatherhood and to be a husband. Um, and, and my grandmother, foster mother, also just very loving, very wise, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say affectionate, but accepting my affection in just the right sort of way. So there was that, you know, they were, you know, a kind of a stern English couple, but that sternness was just enough that to give me that sort of sense of, of presence and stability. Mm -hmm. um, so that was probably the most significant influence that helped me to get through all of that. And then again, through the church, which was much more fleeting in and out, but even there, the people were, were good with me. Um, because yeah, I was a rat bag. I mean, really, yeah, I was. Let's, you know, it's a good Aussie way of saying it. That truly, it, it dis describes what I was like. But that's because there was just no, you know, my childhood was all chaos and, and violence. I mean, my mother was a drug dealer, right? You know, that kind of instability was just constant and, uh, and and difficult to get around. So having those sort of stable presences to go to and to show me a better way made a huge, huge difference. For someone who may have, in, in their own kind of way at the moment, have some form of disconnection, um, obviously you ended up in a position where you then found connection and that mm. you know, started you to be able to heal and to be able to move forward. Um, for someone else who has, in whatever way it is, gone through their own disconnection, even if it's just they're feeling isolated, um, what would you say to that person who's, who's in that state of they're feeling disconnected from people that they may have gone through a loss or they, or they may feel that they don't have anyone around to talk to? Hmm. Well, find it. <laughs> I mean, that's why I got involved with Mentoring Men Australia, to be honest, because, you know, recognizing how important those kinds of people were to me then this program provides me a way to be that for others. So now that we have that um, for a, a male who's not connected, um, to take advantage of a program like this, you know, it, it's, it helps because we're people that they don't necessarily know. 
right? So you can be a little more honest, perhaps a bit more transparent because whatever baggage you're carrying, we as volunteer mentors don't know that. Uh, you can tell us if you like, but you don't have to. So you can come and be open and honest and transparent, which is a good thing. And that's, you know, for the male psyche, that's sort of what we need. We need, you know, significant, wiser elders who can teach us, but then we also need friends and peers who can validate us. Uh, and the two are, are very important. So the connection, find it in any way you possibly can. And not, you know, not in the going to the pub, that kind of connection. That's, you know, nice for stress release, but, you know, this is about taking yourself seriously, knowing what you need and, and find someone who can speak into your life, who will speak truth and wisdom. <laughs> those two have to go together, right? Um, and, and find those where you can. And if something like Mentoring Men can provide that, well, I know it can, um, take advantage of it. I think it's so important. And even myself, up until recently, didn't realize that mm -hmm. there were things like that around that, you know, when mm -hmm. you feel that disconnection, that you, there is something like Mentoring Men where you can find that wisdom and find that mm -hmm. steady voice to, to give you some guidance when you might need it. So you're a mentor at the moment? Yes. You're... Yeah, uh, the, the program is very new. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, Ian Westmoreland only started it a year or two ago. I came across it through an article describing the program on the Australian Men's Health Forum. Uh, I just I, I knew right away this is the kind of thing I would want to be involved in. And so, yes, I trained up to be a volunteer mentor. And that's the other side of it, right? It's not just a matter of, of someone needing connection or help finding a mentor. It's also training people to be mentors. See, this was, you know, we, we talk about sort of, you know, the people who were in my life, but often I would actually approach people to be a mentor and they just had no idea how to do it, you know. Um, and so a lot of those, well, I wouldn't say any of those relationships ended up being very valuable for me mostly because I didn't take advantage of them the way I should have, but the person who I asked to mentor me didn't know how to, to deal with that kind of relationship. And so they couldn't shape it and direct it. They couldn't find out what it was that I actually needed from them, you know, whereas most of the time it was just the presence of someone in my life that has that wisdom and guidance and those skills I was looking to develop but they also needed the skills to be able to shape our conversation and keep it on focus. So the Mentoring Men program helps on both counts. It provides a space for people to find mentors to walk through their, their life for a little while, but it also then teaches men how to be mentors for others. And whether they become official Mentoring Men mentors or not, they can still go back to their workplaces, to their homes, to their sporting clubs, and recognize the, peop you know, the young men around them or, or old men, it depends, um, and, and, and recognize the needs and be able to speak into that in a helpful, uh, helpful way. Uh, Mentoring Men is a volunteer program to provide men a space where they can find someone who will walk with them through their life's journey for a time. Um, it's not permanent. It's, you know, maybe six months, maybe a year, but there might be something that a, a, a man is going through and they need some help, some guidance, some wisdom, or just a friend then the, the mentors who are volunteer but are trained are more than happy to sort of walk alongside and, and be a presence and to offer what they can as the opportunity arises. Could you tell us a little about the activities you are currently involved in? Well, the Mentoring Men is the, the big one, um, but my plans are to 
do additional activities around that. So because, um, well, because I belong to a church and, and lead a church, there are resources that that community can make available as well. So I kind of imagine a strategy where um, I'm hoping to start a man walk under the auspices of the man walk, uh, good catchy title they have, um, but to start a, a walk in the Norellan Camden Campbelltown area, which is simply a, a program where we meet up and we walk. Uh, no man walks alone and you don't have to talk, but you're walking with somebody for 40 minutes to an hour. And the idea is to, in a sense, provide space for men to talk or chat or not, but to promote the idea of men being open and honest and transparent with each other. So men walk with men and we just, okay, well, what kind of phrase can I use? We do talk, let's say that. Now, from that then, um, the idea then would be that the walk would be done in partnership with mentoring men. So if in the, during the duration of the walk or their connection to the walk, they recognize that there are needs, we can promote mentoring men. If their needs go a little bit deeper, then they have the mentoring men program right away that's very quick and easy that they can get on board with. Or men might find that they actually like this walking alongside others and, and being there for them, so then they would get the mentoring men training. Then, using the resources of the church, I would hope to set up, um, which actually, would, which is what got Ian Westmoreland started, was a men's breakfast. So maybe it's a monthly breakfast at a local hotel or a pub or somewhere where we just meet together and we'll have a speaker who will then talk very deliberately and directly on a subject related to suicide, to depression, to unemployment, to networking, whatever the case may be. Um, but that needs a bit more time, it needs more resources, and that's where I think the church can help provide that space and, and, and sponsor it, you know. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping to do, you know, Mentoring Men is just one program, which is not going to connect with everybody or meet the needs that they have. So having a couple of other activities available that go a bit, little bit less deeply and more deeply as well, I think then provides a... I guess a portfolio, you could say, of, of activities that would hopefully be helpful in the Southwest Sydney area. Definitely, I think so. Mm. I think you mentioned when we spoke earlier that uh, men don't like to talk, was it face-to-face? -face? You said face -to -face, they, need to, yeah. they need to be doing something so that the walking, men walking, is like it, it mm. breaks away, I guess, that intimacy, just it's, it's a little bit easier to, to open up when you have either an activity to do or you're not just looking face to face. Um, and you also have the Whiskey Circle. Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, the Whiskey Circle. So this is also one of those, those events um, where, again, providing a safe space for men to talk about men and manhood and masculinity and whatever it is that comes up. And at the Whiskey Circle, as you would guess, we talk about a wide variety of things. <laughs> um, but the idea is simply, um, this was developed by a friend of mine named Kevin Krauss, and it's to form in circles. So there's two circles, an inner circle and an outer circle. So we use a whiskey tasting to draw the men together, but because you're not just scarfing it down, you're actually tasting and savoring, it actually stops you to pay attention. 
not only to the drink, but to yourself, to what's going on in your life. So right away, you're already sort of starting to spark as much as lubricate the conversation. But then using the idea of the circles is you then use your proximity to indicate how much you want to get involved. So if you sit in the inner circle, you are saying, I want to speak. I want to engage, I want to converse. If you sit on the outer circle, then you're indicating that you just want to listen, and that's okay. Um, so it just provides, again, makes that sort of a safer place where people can come in and come out as they choose, and no one's going to look backwards at them or give them a dirty look or, you know, why are you moving? It's, that's the plan, that the idea is to move in and out as people are comfortable so as to get them talking. And, you know, we might have a, a guest conversationalist come in. So there's not a guest speaker, um, someone who comes in who has some sort of expertise. But the idea is to have them share the stories of their adventures, whatever they might be. So we've talked about side hustles, for instance. You know, some people have a career, but they might develop a hobby on the side, make a little money, but it's doing something to be a bit more creative. So they might come in, they might talk about the things they've done, which is then going to spark other people to then ask questions and talk about the things they've done and their side hustles, etc. So that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do with the Whiskey Circle, which again feeds into all of these activities being safe places for men to chat and to seek the help that they need if they need deeper help. You know, it's not a counseling service, it's just men supporting men because that's the way men work. You know, I read a really great article about this, that manhood is, is learned. Um, we, we have to be taught how to be men. You know, we could be male, but we, have to, we need people in our life to both show us how to be good men, fathers, husbands, and then other men to validate us in those roles, to say, you know, you're doing a good job. And um, so hopefully this, these activities will provide that space. What do you think is a myth about male mental health? Well, I think a, a myth about male mental health is that we don't talk. We do talk. Uh, we just talk differently. And it might take different situations and environments for us to open up. So, uh, we've, as we've already mentioned, the face-to-face -face versus side-to-side. -side. You know, women seem to be much more comfortable with the face-to-face. -face. And men do face-to-face -face as well in pubs. But the depth of the conversation is really quite superficial there. We're more, it seems more inclined to be a side-to-side. -side. So when we're alongside each other, we might be working on something or walking together, we're more comfortable to talk when you're not looking into each other's eyes. So if we're in the right space, in the right way, we will talk and be transparent and be completely open. So in terms of mental health, when has uh, your mental health been at its worst? Well, as I mentioned before, when I came to Australia the second time and then took on this role as the, the senior minister of this, this church in Hurstville, um, that was, in a sense, it was a very validating experience because now to be able to be step up and to be entrusted with a, a more serious uh, role with greater expectations and more responsibilities. However, <laughs> um, that was a very hard time as well. I mean, it could have been a lot worse, of course, but I always felt that my leadership was not really accepted. So because I was the, you know, the church knew I was coming at a youth ministry, and even though they invited me to apply for the position because they thought I had you know, the education and experience, et cetera, was needed, I always felt like they only ever accepted me as a student minister, you know, someone who's just training, who was learning all about it. So I burnt out. And I burnt out because the expectations on me 
were so great to lead this congregation, and not only in the weekly routine of you know your service and your sermon and the programs, but then to also to grow and develop this congregation and to help them to connect with the neighborhood in new and different ways. So they had all these expectations for me, but then I felt that they were not allowing me the actual authority to take responsibility for those things. So, you know, if I wanted to make a change or to make a decision, they would always be challenged, constantly, constantly challenged. Now, I mean, as a leader, you should be challenged, but at some point, you know, they've asked you into this role, they've got to kind of trust you. And I never ever had felt that I had that trust. So the pressure just built and built until, you know, after about four years, I started having panic attacks um, and got really quite depressed. I mean, physical panic attacks. You know, you just mentioned the church and I would start weeping, uh, which is really not good. <laughs> um, because, you know, when you're leading in a church, is it's, it's still leadership. It might be a little bit different because you're, you know, as I mentioned before, I mean, you know, you're part of the family. I mean, oh my goodness, trying to be interview, interviewed for a church position, you know, they're not just, you know, looking at your resume, do you have the skills? It's, do you fit with us? We're a family. So there's a lot of pressure on to be a part of this community, but at the same time, because you're the leader, you have to kind of be elevated and outside of it. Um, they can't, you know, they don't necessarily become your friends. You're only friendly because, you know, you've got to kind of show them, you know, they kind of live vicariously through you, you know, not, I, I don't want to pretend that, you know, I'm this good or perfect person, but I have to at least be seen to be representing the ideals of what we're all trying to achieve in ourselves, you know, both in our faith and our lifestyle. So it becomes, you know, you're, you're put on this pedestal and it's a very rocky pedestal all the time. And so for leadership, that was really, really quite hard for me. Now, it could have been worse. <laughs> Certainly, I, you know, other people who have had their first church and it's been a disaster. This wasn't that, but I certainly hit a, a quite serious low. Um, and yeah, anxiety and, and panic, it was awful. Yeah, that, that sounds really tough. Mm. Um, I know like for, I'm, I appreciate you sharing that because no, I know that you're someone that people would look up to and, and, and people may not know or may not think that, you know, someone in your position would have depression or would have yeah. panic attacks. You know, that's just because it's something that men don't really talk about. Um, so I think it's really helpful for people to see that, you know, someone who is successful and, you know, is happy and, and doing incredible things does have times where they're down, mm. does have times where it's hard. And that's what every male has, whether you talk about it or not, doesn't mean it's not happening. So thank you. Yeah. And how did you get yourself out of that, uh, that time? Well, I mean, I'd like to say that I caught it early, but the fact that I was having physical panic attacks suggests that I didn't. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I did catch it and I realized what was going on. And so very quickly found a counselor. Um, that I could um, start meeting with and talking with, etc. I also knew that my health was probably part of the problem, so that's when I started running. Um, so I got my diet under control, or at least tried, um, and, and started running. So, um, you know, found a friend and we would just run around an oval once in a while. And then while running around the oval, we bumped into some other guys that ran weekly and so started running with them. So then found a you know, a little gang, so to speak, of runners running around the Reesby Panini area and then starting to then enter into events. Um, so having goals mattered. 
um, as well. You know, when you're depressed, you've got to have something to not just look forward to, but to work towards. And so the running gives me that, you know, yes, I do sign up for some crazy events, but it doesn't matter what it is. If you have something you're training for, it makes a huge difference. And so then that's when I then started running at Lake Illawana and bumped into the Westies Running Club. And that's been quite a saving grace because not only do they provide an opportunity for the running, but the community there is just so encouraging. You know, we've got really, really fast elite runners and we've got young kids who I'm still faster than, but they're catching up to me very, very quickly. And everybody's just, you know, doing their own thing, but we're also all doing it together. And so that was really, really helped. So you found, found community there, um, helped to get fit, in sort of fit. <laughs> um, my diet under control took a bit of time off. Not enough, of course, but you know, some, you know, you got to kind of step back. But unfortunately, in my case, you know, the role continues. So I still have to sort of meet the demands of the position um, because if I don't, there's no one else to do that. But, you know, sort of getting my lifestyle under control uh, made a huge difference. And then from there, I actually left that position after five years and went to a part time position so then I could do some more studies. But again, that was really about sort of getting my life back under control and refocused again. And that's, I think I'd like to say that's why I've still survived. I mean, I've been working for the church for over 25 years now, so I must be doing something okay. <laughs> I think that's great advice, that simple actions mm. done in unison can help people get through. Because mm. sometimes it does feel like nothing will help. Yeah, it does. So in you, are involved in uh, mentoring men as a mentor. Mm -hmm. You have the whiskey circle. You are involved in the running club. And obviously in your work, uh, you are speaking to people and, and helping mm -hmm. people. What passion drives all of this for you? Well, that sense of hope that I mentioned to you that, you know, that sort of coming out of my childhood, what saved me and helped to build the resilience was having the people in my life, but also them pointing me towards something. So believing that tomorrow can be better. So I guess now I'm, I'm really animated by that sense of, you know, I think life can be better for people and, and not make a difference so much as to, you know, to, to work proactively and constructively towards that future, whatever it may be. So, you know, my family, for instance, gets along really well when we're working towards something. It could be holidays, it could be helping my daughter finish her HSC, but we're working towards something. Um, so belonging to the church, you know, we, yes, we sit around and we navel gaze a lot, sure, but we're also working together to make this a healthy, functioning um, community that adds value to the neighborhood. So I would hope that whatever I do, um, we're doing something to be helpful and to, you know, yes, show people a better way to live and to live together, but working towards something. Um, yeah, that's really kind of my passion for all that. Yeah. So the final Thanks. thing I want to do is just say thank you. I appreciate you Pleasure. for sharing your story um, and for lending your voice to uh, a project that will hopefully help a lot of men out there. So thank cool. you. Thank you for tuning in. A huge thank you to our guest, make sure you head to wearemen.com.au for more information about the project and for a list of services that are available to men out there who want to learn how to be a man who talks. See you guys next week.